Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Enough and More. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 29, 2018. I grew up with parents who were always feeding people. I can barely remember a weekend when we didn't have people, parishioners, college students, relatives, neighbors, sitting around our dining table. In fact, my earliest memories all involve warm, bustling kitchens, tables laden with food, and countless guests enjoying food and fellowship. My mom garnishing fragrant pans of lamb biryani with cashews and raisins for crowded church potluck. My dad presiding over hamburgers, hot dogs, and tandoori chicken at our annual Sunday school barbecue. Waking up to the fragrance of onion, ginger, garlic, India's culinary trinity, frying on our stove as my mom and my aunts prepared a traditional Easter breakfast for our extended family. Of course, as a child, I had no concept of how much time, effort, and commitment went into my parents' lifestyle of hospitality. Neither did I understand that my parents valued feeding people so much because they knew firsthand what it felt like to go hungry. Only as a teenager did I learn that each of them remembered lean times back in India, times when drought, recession, or failed crops rendered food scarce. My father, in particular, had vivid memories of going to bed hungry as a little boy. As I came to appreciate later, it was my parents' own acute awareness of hunger, of what it feels like to need and not get, that motivated them to extend an open table to others. This week, our lectionary reading centers around Jesus' multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the only Jesus story that appears six times across the four Gospels. Clearly, this event meant a lot to the early church. But what can it mean to us, here, now, in the 21st century? In its original setting, I can easily imagine how Jesus' actions would have resonated with the crowds who flocked around him. They were colonized peasants, overworked, underpaid, and malnourished. They knew the agony of an empty table, the agony of watching their children cry for bread. But me, not so much. I've never been hungry like that. I've never had to wait more than a few hours for a meal. So where is the resonance, the challenge, the indictment, the power of this miracle for me? When I was little, my parents, brother, and I often spent our summers in the villages my parents grew up in back in rural South India. There, too, food was central. I still remember how my grandmother chased down poultry, haggled with the fish sellers, sent a farmhand up a tree to cut down coconuts, gathered peppers and green beans from her garden, and hand-ground spices on a slab of stone in the backyard to make the mouth-watering curry she took such pleasure in feeding us. In that world, food was a gift. To prepare it with care was an act of generosity and deep love. To receive it with gratitude was a matter of honor and respect. As my mother constantly reminded me when we had to visit several relatives in one afternoon, and every last one of them insisted on stuffing treats into my mouth, eat something, at least a bite. There's no worse insult you can offer than to refuse their food. In contemporary Western culture, though, it's much harder to honor food as a gift. We tend to treat it like dynamite. Often we carry our beautiful hors d'oeuvres to our church potlucks, circle the laden tables with fear in our eyes, nibble a little here and a little there, always afraid of who might be watching, and then carry our, carry our beautiful, barely-touched dishes home again. I'm not judging anyone. I think we've come by the problem honestly. Jesus' feeding miracles were intended to speak abundance into a culture of scarcity. But we live in a culture of excess. Excess messaging, packaging, consuming, and dieting. We hardly know how to hear the word abundance in a positive light. We're too scared of its dangers to trust in its promise. For some of us, food is an idol. For others, an enemy. 
for still others an addiction coded in secrecy and self-loathing? How would we respond if Jesus performed a loaves and fishes miracle now in our contemporary midst? Would we allow ourselves to enjoy his generosity, savor his offering, or would we hem and haw and hesitate? St. Mark's version of this miracle says that the crowds ate and were satisfied. Would we be able to say that? Or would we say something more like, we ate and looked around to see if we'd eaten more or less than the people sitting next to us. We ate and immediately started calculating. 700 calories? 900? How long on the treadmill to undo this damage? We ate, but only the fish, not the bread. You know, carbs. We didn't eat. We gorged. When Jesus fed the multitudes, people sat down together, taking only what they needed so that everyone got enough. The point was not to scheme, conserve, or quantify. The point was not to clamor for more. The point, very simply, was to enjoy the gift of a single-stay portion in the company of others. Abundance didn't have to lead to gluttony. Food didn't have to lead to fear, isolation, and shame. But when Jesus fed the multitudes, he was also acknowledging what we so often try to forget that we are physical beings with legitimate physical needs. We're not airy spirits. We have bodies, and those bodies themselves are gifts from God, gifts worthy of honor and care. In fact, I would argue that Jesus was able to perform the miracle he did precisely because he took basic human needs so seriously. When his disciples looked at the crowd, they saw only their own insufficiency, their own scant resources, the impossibility of the situation. But Jesus allowed himself to see genuine need, and he allowed that need to hit him squarely in his own gut. In the face of the crowd's deep hunger, despair couldn't be an option. Someone had to act. Maybe it's only when we get in touch with our own deepest needs, for nourishment, for companionship, for help, for love, that we can extend a generous table to others. Maybe we need to be felled by our own hungers before we can turn abstract compassion into life-saving action. The crowds ate and were satisfied. Is this because they ate at the presence of Jesus? What would that be like? To invite him to our tables, to let him watch and partake as we eat, to welcome the incarnate Jesus into the intimate realm of our bodily hungers. Where might such brave communion lead? In the end, Jesus' feeding miracles were his self-revelations. He gave bread because he is bread. He fed hungry bodies because he too inhabited and honored a body. At my church, we say this prayer during Eucharist. May it be ours this week and always. Lord, be known to us, in our own bodies which are your temple, in the giving and receiving of good gifts, in the breaking of the bread. For books this week, Dan reviews Meeting with My Brother. This autobiographical novella begins with the failed attempt of the main character and narrator, a South Korean professor named Yi, to meet his father for the first time in 40 years. This meeting was both illegal and quite dangerous. Yi describes his father as having been a naive revolutionary who abandoned his wife and three children and defected to North Korea at the outbreak of the war. Among other things, this stigmatized them as the family of a traitor. When Yi learned that his father was still alive, he paid Mr. Kim to arrange a meeting with him. But before they could meet, his father died. Perhaps out of shame or a sense of obligation, Mr. Kim then offered to connect Yi with his half-brother in North Korea for his father had remarried and had five more children with his second wife. As you would expect, Yi was horribly nervous to meet this half-brother for the first time. Their encounter began with mutual suspicions, assumptions, misapprehensions, and questions surrounding their respective homes and histories, the reclusive and repressive North and the westernized and consumerist South. 
Is he really a millionaire? Does another brother live in grinding poverty? They discuss historical naming conventions and especially ancestral memorial rites for their deceased father. Reunification looms large, and so the many layers of the divided Korea emerge through the prism of the sibling rivalry that turns into a relationship. Half-brothers living in their respective half-countries who have inherited a situation that neither one wants and that weakens them both and binds them by keeping them apart. The novelist Yi Moon Yeol was born in 1948, just two years before the start of the Korean War. He is South Korea's most celebrated writer of the last 30 years, having written some two dozen books that have won every literary award that country offers. There is no other writer, says translator Heinz Fenkel, whose work addresses such a broad spectrum of psychological, cultural, political, and historical themes. For more on North Korea in particular, see Dan's reviews of the 2006 movie Inside North Korea and the two books Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea, and Escape from Camp 14. For movies this week, Dan reviews Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 45. This 40-minute film about the artist Mindy Alper premiered at the Austin Film Festival where it won two awards. It later won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject in 2018. Alper is an artist from Los Angeles, and thus the 405 freeway of the film title, whose work has been featured in numerous galleries, paper mache, sculpture, ink drawings, and paintings. The last few minutes of the film feature one of her exhibitions. But what really drives this movie is its story of Alper's lifelong struggles with severe mental illnesses. As she rocks back and forth and wrings her hands, she describes in excruciating detail her many symptoms, acute anxiety, clinical depression, OCD, migraines, phobia, suicidal ideation, and hallucinations. These were clearly aggravated by a complex relationship with her mother, too little touching, and her violently abusive father, too much touching. She also describes her extensive medical efforts to treat her symptoms in order to regain a semblance of normalcy, psychiatric hospitalizations, electroconvulsive therapy, a complicated regimen of dozens of pills, and most redemptive of all, a long relationship with a therapist named Shoshana Gerson. And it is Gerson who is the subject of much of Alper's work. Kudos to director Frank Stifel for this compassionate exploration of such a complicated subject that is too often ignored. Dan, watch this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poems this week, Bread of the World and Mercy Broken by Reginald Heber. Bread of the world and mercy broken, wine of the soul in mercy shed, by whom the words of life were spoken, and in whose death our sins are dead. Look on the heart by sorrow broken, look on the tears by sinners shed, and be thy feast to us the token that by thy grace our souls are fed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 29th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.